Hello, Gentle Listener, and welcome to our podcast, where we answer all of your questions about Gene Wolfe. Okay, do that again, <laughs> but do it right. Oh, my bad. <laughs> Hello, Gentle Listener. Welcome to this podcast. All right. right, don't make me pull this podcast over, because I will. Oh. And then I'll keep driving this podcast, but you'll be walking. Uh, and you'll uh, be miles behind me very quickly. So exhausting. And then I won't remember to return you to the library. Whoa! And I'll get all kinds of overdue fines. Yep. Because you won't get your deposit back. Yeah, I won't get my deposit back. And they yep. took forty-seven hundred stuff. Credit. Point. Credit. Units? Things? Units, I think, is the safest term, probably. Probably. Units of measurement of money. Yes. Excellent. Anyway. Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. Hi, I'm, I'm Ethan Bartlett. He's been talking this whole time, <laughs> so you should recognize who he is by now. So, There's actually yeah. always a low background murmur with me talking. Yep, it's true. Yeah. It's true. He's always back there talking. You hear that, that whisper in the wind? That's Ethan talking yeah, yeah, to you. Yeah. If you ever look at the the uh, the strip of your podcast tape and you see like one <sighs> white line running along it, that's that's the background murmur. Oh. I'm dead again. Well, sorry. I'm dead. Guess I am piloting this podcast all by myself. Yep, you definitely let's, are. Uh, let's go to Bermuda. <laughs> no. No? Yeah, I no. guess... We don't want the podcast to disappear. Uh, yeah, that'd be that'd be good. Yep. To not make it disappear. Good. So, uh, to remind the listeners, uh, we are drinking uh, the Macallan Fine Oak Triple Cask Triple Cask Matured Highland wanna, Single Malt. I'm going to start over. Do you want to take that? The Macallan Fine Oak Triple Cask Matured. Maybe maybe I should just take that tip and slow down. Yeah, apparently it was a good tip. The Macallan Fine Oak. Update. Triple I don't think it was a good tip. Matured Highland Single tip. Malt Scotch Whiskey, ten ten years old. You know when yeah. you do deliver it with the both tens, it it has a little bit of like a carnival barker flavor. Ten ten, ten years old. old. This Scotch. <laughs> step right up. Step right up. It's ten years old. Uh. Yeah. Anyway. So we're drinking that when our glasses kink kink when our glasses kink. I, I don't know that I want to know when our glasses game. <laughs> no. Uh. When they clink, uh, then the rules take effect. The rules which are, as you will hear now from Ethan's lovely wife, Karen. Karen, what are the rules? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? 
If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. Yeah, those rules. You know, you could have just said the rules which are, and that would have been evident. And yeah, Karen doesn't need the credit. Like, she's, she's you know, <laughs> egotistical enough as it is. Oh, okay. Um, she's so we'll... an extremely egotistical person. Because it's her that has a podcast where she talks for two hours every month and not me. Right. Um, who, who talks for two hours every month because when we tried doing it for one hour every month, we couldn't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Anyway. So, alright, now you know the rules. Now the podcast will begin when we clink our glasses. Ready? Slancha. Roast. <laughs> threw me off for a second there. So, we are continuing to discuss A Borrowed Man by Gene Wolfe. We are. And Ethan, you promised our listeners that you would answer all of their questions. Okay, and I did want to start this episode with this just because there's a decent amount to it, and I feel like if I wait... When I wait to introduce stuff like this, like it, I wait way too long, and then right. I get to the end, and then either I do it fast or don't do it at all. All right, so here are my actual notes that I wrote in the back of the book. Actually, you wrote notes in your book? I did. I'm Holy a monster crap. who hold writes on, on hold books. Hold on, let's, let's compare how many notes we wrote. You wrote so many more notes than I did. Now, in fairness, you are in like three columns, and I'm in sort of... Not even sure. one column. Sure. And also, your handwriting you, is much smaller. My than My handwriting mine. is like nine point font. Yours is somewhere around sixteen. I so. would say fourteen, but fourteen. Sure. Because I don't like sixteen point font is the only reason I feel the need to say that. But I get to shape this narrative. So all right, it's fourteen. It's fourteen. So there. It's fourteen, gentle listener. Won fourteen. That, won that rhetorical battle. Yep, you did. Um. It's all okay. Yours. You take that. So. <laughs> so uh, here, and this this is sort of like a progressive set of notes that I wrote myself, and they are not the actual notes because I don't want you to have to hear my, like, stupid mumbo-jumbo shorthand. Did you notice, gentle listener, he's censoring himself. Wow, that was a weird bout of silence just now. Yeah, I know. You, like, leaned into the mic, and then there was, like, ten seconds of silence. Yeah, I know. What, what just happened? That's weird. I don't um, know. I don't know. I'm gonna... This is how you know Ethan is an unreliable narrator. I'm going to kill you and bury your body in the woods. Anyway, <laughs> um, so, at a certain point, part partway through um, uh, reading this, I wrote to myself, so at the beginning, um, Colette's story is that her brother gave her the book, right? This mm -hmm. book, Murder on Mars, that seems to be like, well, first of all, was the, the MacGuffin and the impetus for... Um, Colette to seek Urn out in the first the, place. The key to the whole story right. and also the key to a distant planet. It's the uh, the, <laughs> the uh, Maltese Falcon of this book. Excuse me. In a mm -hmm. sense. It's the briefcase. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, at the beginning the Colette's brother gives her this book, Murder on Mars, which Colette knows is somehow the key to unlocking her father's murder or the secrets mm -hmm. that her father kept. Um, or something along those lines. Um, now the story that Colette tells is that her brother gave her this book, mm -hmm. um, and then her father died, and then the brother is killed, as no, I recall. It was the father died, then the brother gave the book. 
Oh yeah, that's I must I, I must because because he uh, got it out of the safe. He got it out of the safe after the father died, which right. he was only able to according to Colette. because the father died. Right, right. Now, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, but then by the end, the father killed the brother, and Colette right. admits that this is true. Right. So my first question, which I did answer for myself, and in fact gets answered in the text, where did Colette get the book? Sure. Right. So on page two eighty nine um, through to um, page two ninety, and this is in that last drawing room scene where Ern mm-hmm. sits Colette down and says, "I've figured out everything. Here's the solution to the mystery. There are no more mysteries or, or questions left unresolved. Go away and and tuck yourselves into bed, reader, gentle reader, with the knowledge that there's nothing everything more to see is here. Care of. Yeah." Okay. Here's the pretty little bow. You can relax. Right. Stop investigating this. Right. So, Ern explains at the bottom of 289 to the top of 290 um, uh, that what, what, first of all, that the brother, that Conrad Jr., went through the safe and found emeralds instead of the book. Yep. Um, and that that theft from his father may have been what sealed Conrad's fate. Right. Um... And in addition to the emeralds, oh, okay, in addition to the emeralds, he found the book, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then Ern says, after that, you're actually telling the truth, that he found the book, he gave you the book, you knew the book had, you know, some some secret, secret. whatever. Um, uh, you know, he the brother didn't know, Conrad Jr. didn't know what the book meant, um, you know, et cetera and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. How, so that's that question answered. However, right, um, what Ern then says, uh, Conrad Jun- he, referring to Conrad Jr., hoped you might know what the, the mystery of the book, the, the solution. When you didn't, he left it with you, hoping you might discover some clue that he'd missed. Then your father returned, probably with more emeralds. And then he asked, do hmm. you know where he got them? Right? So... What this is referring to is something we didn't really talk directly about last episode, is the fact that one of the two mysterious rooms, besides the one with the safe and the nuclear reactor in this house, is a room that apparently the a door opens onto another planet. Right. Um, and we, we, I guess we talked a little bit about it because that's, yeah, a little. that's sort of the colonization that this father had yeah. done, um, that he then went and, and uh, you know, mined mined these emeralds and came back to our world and sold them and that's you know sort of part of what caused all of the problems or at least caused all of the plot really to happen. Right. right um so uh now this this door urn figures out according to urn's own narrative that the door is accessed through like key chips in the book yeah um, that the front of the book has one key chip to let you into this this other planet. Mm-hmm. The back of the book has another key chip to let you out again. Right. Right. So here's my question. Ern's explanation is um, the uh, uh, Conrad Jr. found the emeralds and this mysterious book while your father was gone on the other side of this door that he would have had to have the book in order to access how did he get in to the other world without this book 
Mm. And not only that, it's gone. the The narrative goes pretty out of its way to say this has to have been the only way, the only set of keys that there were. Yeah, like he explores the possibility that there were other keys and comes to the conclusion: no, there could not have been. Oh. And not only that, there was there was something that I did figure out in my first read where Ernst drops this little throwaway line where he says, you know, it seems like a lot of extra work to make a key to open one side of the door one way so you go in and then a yeah. different key to open the same door the other way so you get out. And he has this little throwaway line where he says, I'll let you, like, surely you can figure out why someone would do that. Right. And, like, the solution, at least that he wants you to come to is pretty obvious or maybe he doesn't want you to come to it but the solution is pretty obvious either way that way it's easier if you need to push something to one side of the door and and keep keep it it out of the other side you can do that there's a mechanism for it right yeah and that's what led me to this conclusion okay conrad senior was alive during part of this story and conrad jr is alive at the end of this story what so here's what i think happened and i fully admit i i'm not accounting for every detail in this narrative yet because i haven't read this book the four more times that i need to do with all of gene wolf i think i said it takes like 26 yeah rereads and four four was four was being very generous (laughs) towards my my intelligence and ability to pick up on things but yeah um so what if colette and her brother figured out that her dad was like strip mining this this planet that's accessed through the door. Uh-huh. Now I was suspicious at one point that this planet even existed. Yeah. Because it's like just so out there because like this is a certain it's extremely fantastical. Yeah, like this is a certain story with, you know, science fiction elements it's set right. in the future, but that that the whole planet thing seems like just another leap still. Yeah. Um but that doesn't work for my theory, so I'm ignoring those suspicions. Sure. And I, I, I wasn't able to come up with anything on these, this like one and a half reads of this book to support the idea that the planet doesn't exist. I just sure. am very suspicious of it because, you know, reading a Gene Wolfe novel, as we established last episode, is a giant constant existential crisis. Yep. Um, which, Ugh. like... Is part of the fun of it for people like it, us. Yeah, it absolutely is. Also is why other people, you know, hate books like this. But, right. You know, that's that's a different topic altogether. Right. right. Okay. Here is what I think. Okay. I think... Lay it on me. Colette and Conrad Jr. conspired. They figured out that their dad was, was strip mining emeralds. They figured out everything about the planet. They conspired to strand him on the planet. So one way or another, they got him to go through the door, but leave them the book, um, or something like that. Uh, they 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 tried to strand him on that planet, or possibly he just went away on one of his strip mining trips because it it mm-hmm. establishes in the narrative that these took several months. Right. Um. Uh. So maybe he maybe they don't even know he's dead for sure. They just think he's gone, and now they're doing this right. One way or another, they figure out that that the diamonds um, come from the door somehow, that they Mm -hmm. have something to do with that, and that this book has something to do with that. Um, They would have had to strand him on the other side of the door somehow and get the book back. So I guess they would have had to have known if this theory is is to work. So we're going to accept that, right? So he's he's there on the other side of the door. Um, 
They send her after Urn in order to establish a paper trail that they don't know what this book does. Oh, okay. So so, it's all a big red herring. Yeah, in a sense, which would be fair because this narrative, no matter how you interpret this narrative, including that surface level detective novel interpretation, is filled with red herrings. Yep. Um, Okay. So they they send her after, after Urn. And Urn is smarter than they're counting on, which yep. would make sense because, you know, the libraries in this world seem to be sort of like the libraries in our world, except with more advanced technology. As in, there are certain specific groups of people who frequent them, mm-hmm. and there are other people who just sort of ignore them and don't think that they're that they're worth very much. So you have right. these reclones who get ignored and neglected for years and years until finally they get burned, which right. is not something that happens if this is an institution that everybody uses constantly, right? Right. So that's, and it's in character, Ernie even says it's in character for Colette as a school teacher yep. to go to the library to try to solve a mystery. So that's their paper trail to say, we don't know what this book does. They've now stranded their dad on the other side of, of the uh, the door. They didn't expect Ern to be as smart as he was. They mm-hmm. don't know about library resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, that all happens, and then everything sort of goes sideways when Ern is way smarter and way sharper than they Mm -hmm. expect him to be. Um, he starts sort of interfering and, you know, getting, getting, uh, getting involved. Like, I'm starting to think maybe that kidnapping of Colette, uh, or not, not the kidnapping, but where they, they broke in and sort of uh tie urn and colette up to chairs Mm -hmm. what was meant to happen was they were supposed to get the book and Mm -hmm. colette was supposed to sort of play the damsel in distress distract urn by being like oh i I don't know what happened please comfort me you know keep him for that 10 days return him to the library and then that gets used in the court case to say which is talked about several times in here how very suspicious they are of inheritance related murders yeah um, so they can say, well, we tried, we did our best, you know, and we, we don't know, right? Um, and so, you know, that the whole thing about everyone watching them is maybe a red herring to to make Urn sort of think that there's there's much more going on here. But Urn ultimately does get to the bottom of it, mm-hmm. um, muddles everything up. And so a lot of what happens later with Colette, like, being, being taken by the police um, yeah. would be a red herring, would be just you know, uh, them sort of trying to figure out what Ern knows or figure out what they have to do. Uh-huh. Um, so, meanwhile, Ern figures out what he figures out, sits Colette down. Okay, oh, here's, this is what's, what's the missing piece. Yeah. Um, and this just assumes that Ern is straight up lying in a large swath of this book, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's uh, too far-fetched. So that passage where Urn goes through the door um, and, you know, finds, like, Conrad Sr.'s old hunting rifle in the yep. mine and, and, you know, then, like, gets chased around by all these these people and all that, that mm-hmm. nonsense. Um, I think that was just a giant red herring to say Urn figured out what was going on, tracked down the father in the other world, and shot him dead. Huh. Which is not something Ern would confess in a narrative that no. he's creating to a make himself the knight in shining armor and b justify everything. Right, right. Here, um, but it would make a lot more sense out of the very first 
thing Ern tells us being murder, murder is, not. is not always such a bad thing. Now, no. what's what's Ern's motivation? Well, that's the part where, to some extent, he is telling the truth. Sure. Right? It's established quite thoroughly in multiple places throughout this book that this is a world where they create these reclones. There's nothing in the book to actually establish that a reclone is anything different from a real person. Yep. Other than that they're considered less than a person. Right. And like you know, there's a is... hint that some people can tell. Yeah. But it's that they can tell that they're ethereal. synthesized material. <laughs> You know that that could that could actually just be biological. You yeah, know, if they're created out of something other than sort of human flesh, like sure. you can maybe tell that. But as far as intelligence goes, as far as perception goes, as far yep. as emotion goes, like there's nothing in this book to distinguish Ern from a real person. Right. It it almost is a little bit, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin ish. Sure. But in a future setting that that the political situation doesn't literally exist yet. Mm-hmm. Right. It's an argument that that you know these these are real people that we're taking advantage of mm-hmm. and everyone else in the culture just kind of ignores that because it benefits them right or at least it would be too much to their detriment to do anything about yeah. it right so earn and we we referenced this briefly a couple times last episode he's literally fighting for his survival yeah his entire goal and purpose is to create a situation where he he has guaranteed survival for as long as he possibly can. Right. Which he does by, you know, offing the guy that, that could come along and foil um, Colette and Conrad mm-hmm. Jr.'s plan, and then having that to hold over them, and then constructing a narrative that, you know, exonerates him entirely, more or less exonerates Colette if the narrative comes to light, but... Um, hmm. you know, keeps put it basically puts her in a position of what, needing to keep him happy, and it's a plausible enough narrative whether it's true or not, because he straight up says that if your narrative is plausible enough, the authorities will believe you. Yeah. Um. So all he has to do is have a narrative and have enough evidence that if he turns it into the authorities, they'll get Colette. Sure. It doesn't need to be true. Um. So I think that's what what has happened here is that Ern mm. committed this murder in order to have the the uh, leverage to hold over Colette that she would continue to check him out every year, mm-hmm. which makes him relevant, which ensures his survival, mm-hmm. makes him indispensable. Exactly. Um, which you know, then she's sort of in that that delicate balance where as long as she doesn't push too far one way or the other, it also ensures her survival. It's mm-hmm. it's a uh, you know essentially him him he's yes committed a murder but you know as i flip through mm-hmm. quickly he's he's committed this murder but murder is not always such a terrible thing yeah it is bad sure sometimes awfully awfully bad and to murder a guy that you don't know that as far as you know because if conrad jr is still alive he didn't commit that murder all he's doing is strip mining a planet that may or may not be inhabited and may or may not, you know, the emeralds may or may not be valuable to these, these natives. Um, you know, he, he, uh, like to murder that guy, that's like not that bad. Um, sure. or I mean, it is that bad is, is actually what I'm saying is, is it's, it's like worse than if you're murdering someone who is himself already a murderer. Right. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, but only only sometimes. I've been lying here on my shelf trying to figure out why I wrote all this. Oh, you know which what? Which is I just complete. Realized? Which actually, that sentence is a lie. That sentence is directly contradicted because he says, I wrote all this down in order to have it to hold over Colette so she would check yep. me out. So, and also, he's, he is, it's, it's also true because he's been lying on his shelf. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I didn't think of that until you said it out loud. Wow. <laughs> Which, again, is the sort of, you know... James Joyce Vladimir Nabokov literary tradition that Gene Wolfe is interested in where a sentence can change yep. between how it's written on the page and when you say it out loud like yep. it takes on new meanings read aloud uh, he's, he's lying him on so his much. shelf he confesses to lying in the fourth sentence of this book oh my gosh <laughs> oh anyway wow um, um I so hate this I, book Yes, absolutely. Okay. I don't want to poke holes in your theory here. Well, one last piece of it. Yep. Before, and the, I'll lay the whole theory before you. Yeah. Like a giant bubble for you to poke holes in. Okay. Um, Conrad like Jr. This theory. Conrad Jr. Yes, where's he? He's alive. Um, I, I would have to do one more actually thorough read to back this up, but... The officer of the law that's escorting Colette that has her under arrest, who appears and Earn does see, yeah, who's called Dane, um, mm-hmm. uh, which the tax collector guy, yeah, who winds up getting trapped on the planet. Oh, that's right, he does, huh? That I don't know that that. Anyway, I th- I think he might be Conrad Junior. Huh. Um. Furthermore, uh, um. In in this the, the climax, like some of the very last few pages. Now, I do want to say that I like how. Uh, uh, where is it? Um, just the turn the turn of conversation here. Even though I think it might be a a conversation Earn made up to fit with the rest of his narrative. Sure. On two ninety five, like the the second to last page turn. Um, so, actually, it's, it starts more in the middle of 295. And this is just a wonderfully written conversation. Yeah. Um, it's delightful. Colette says, I was absolutely determined to bring Cobb's murderer to justice. I didn't know how much money that might take, but I felt sure it would take a lot. Explaining why she looked for the money um, Yep. before that. Uh, as it was, father died of a heart attack before I could even begin. I said, a few days ago, it was a brain aneurysm. Mm-hmm. She stared. Perhaps he, and this is Ernigan, perhaps he had a bad heart and the guilt of Cobb's murder made it worse. Back in control now that he's given her an out, yep. Colette nodded. I think you're right. Certainly I hope you are. I said, however, you poisoned him. Mm-hmm. Which is just so, like, so He gives her like, an out and then takes it away. Yeah, that's just like a classic drop the mic moment. Yep. You know, like he could have just looked at her and said deuces and walked out the door. But no, they, he has to keep going. He's compelled to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he he explains how he knew that she had poison. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, when you brought me to this apartment originally on 296, you insisted that I stay out of the kitchen and your bedroom. And basically he explains because that's where she's keeping the poison. Yep. Right. And then later, um, just recently, he told them not to go into her bedroom. But not but the kitchen. Not the kitchen. Didn't care about the kitchen. Um, you'd had the poison in there just in case you needed to kill me. Um, and so after he lays that out for her, she agrees to it. Yeah. Um, 
so she could just be agreeing to this because it's better than the actual explanation. Right. Um, Absolutely. And so, you know, maybe maybe Dane is a real government person. It would make sense that this seems like a very authoritarian, controlling government. It would make sense for someone like that to be to be in there. Um, she says she, she might have poisoned Dane. Okay, what if instead of keeping poison, especially in that first passage, which we already poked holes at a little bit ago, mm-hmm. what if uh, Dane was hiding... Or not Dane, but but uh, Conrad. Conrad Jr. was Conrad. was um, hiding in the sixth room. In the sixth room, or in the bedroom, or in the kitchen, like she was literally just blanketing off a space for him to be hiding in. Yeah, because legally he was dead now. Right. Um, you do obviously have to explain who died that the authorities found. Right. That's um, that's one of the questions I had. Was what about the autopsies that come in here? Yeah, I thought of that. Done? Now, one thing that comes to mind is the fact that we've established that there are reclones clones. in this world. Oh. So what if we just we just cloned him? And we've already established that this mansion for the Coldbrooks is expansive and vast, and also they're super wealthy. And there's and... super advanced technology in yep. it that even in this already very technologically advanced world is advanced for this world. Right, it, especially if, if we accept the idea that this portal to another world exists, that's super advanced technology. Right, right. Which, which if you can do that, what can't you do? Exactly. So, ah, okay. Yep, nope, hadn't thought of the reclones idea there. Yeah. I should have. Yeah. I should have, definitely should have. <laughs> the other The other thought I had about that is just what if you somehow swapped identities sure so you had two different bodies one was Cobb, one was someone else yeah you and you literally just told the entire computer system that keeps track of citizens that they are different people right which we've established that there's the ability to hack into things to be very convincing to other people mahala is the example yeah Um, exactly and if you know if you do accept that like some at least some of these shadowy mm-hmm. you know conspiratorial types following them around are real and not just red herrings created by Colette and Conrad maybe it was one of those guys sniffing after them who got too close so they murdered him swapped identities quick yep. you know um like honestly either of those make sense to me uh yeah was that did you have any more holes you wanted to to poke in this theory? I, I don't know if it's actually holes in that theory. I really like that theory. Uh-huh. It's it's fascinating to me. Um but I also think it's like it maybe doesn't go deep enough, but like I don't know if I would ever be satisfied with any theory. Right. <laughs> about um, this book. Yeah, what I what I genuinely I, I I don't think it goes deep enough myself, and what I genuinely would like to do from this point is just an Alzebo Soup style reread where we go maybe two chapters per hour yeah. and really dig in and see what we can mine out because I, I think um I I don't know, you know, uh either that this that there would be sort of more tendrils to this theory or that it could be contradicted with a third even deeper theory. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. You know, Which so. is like Maybe I'm getting into that a little bit, but um, the there's this other conversation that happens almost at the end, pages 270, 271, yeah. um, where they're looking at the house, and then uh, right in the middle of the page, uh, he says, from inside it looks quite different, doesn't it? All houses do, she said. 
It was my turn to nod, and I did. Humanity is like that. Seen from outside, it's quiet and peaceful, almost torpid. You'll mm-hmm. agree. Uh, and so there, and, and then there's a discussion about why humanity is torpid. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and uh, this book is itself kind of that facade mm-hmm. over the difference underneath. Right. And, like, you've got hints. Mahala is one of the characters that gives that hint where right. she's mute, and so society wants to get rid of her. Right. Uh, kind of how society gets rid of the not-quite-humans. Right. Like, the reclones. Right. And um, so it, it's... I don't know if... I don't want to call it a commentary because that seems cheap. Right. Um, but uh, it, it's like it's trying to... To express something more real, I don't know. Okay, so well, on page set two seventy, uh-huh. um, this is something that I, I made a big note of uh, because we're getting close to the end of the book by this point. And right at the top of page two seventy, um, uh, Ern says, "The writer I used to be would like to have our last conversation take place there." Like, Referring to the, to the garden where they get some had their poetic first closure here, sort of real conversation, right? Where they felt like they both felt like they weren't being bugged right, or watched, right? Or yeah. He says, "But I don't see how I can possibly arrange it. There will be no formal closure to our story, Colette. Only a brief and brutal final chapter. Yes, this, the kind this life generally supplies, which is part of what made me think: a he did a murder, uh huh. Um, like there's a murder in this book. Mm-hmm. B that the neat and and tidy little bow and the positioning that Ern himself, you know, even gives. ending at midnight. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, like that. That a lot of that is artificial. Yes. Um. The now, honestly, when I first read that, what I thought was, okay, this ends with him murdering her. Sure. Somehow. All of what he's done and, and said and thought adds up to him murdering her. Sure. Um, I which... will say I did figure out pretty early on that someone was going to get trapped on the planet. Oh, yeah, yeah. At some absolutely, point. yeah. But it was like this Van Petten, Dane uh, guy. Yeah. Kind of gets thrown in at the end. Like right. we kind of meet him earlier on. Right. But then it's kind of fed to us later. Oh, no, that was the same guy as that guy earlier. Right. And so. Which is part of what the fact that his identity is so slippery. Yeah. Is part of what made me wonder if maybe he's the brother. Sure. Since sure. like Ern, yeah. you know, other than. Well, I guess, though, he does see a picture of the brother. But again, True. if there was some sort of identity swap. Yeah. You know, that. That might not mean Which, anything. Which, theoretically, in a technologically advanced place, a picture could be changed. Yeah. I mean, we're already right as we speak. You know, a lot of... They're digital picture frames. Yep. They look like traditional picture frames, but you, you feed them from a computer. You you can swap out the photos without having to, like, go to all the hassle of taking the back off and inserting a new photo and re-putting the back on, which has obviously been oppressing picture displayers for generations. Right. Um, <laughs> but, so, you know, it wouldn't be... I, I don't necessarily think you can rely on, uh, you know, and that's one another one of those pulp detective tropes. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, oh, I saw this person in a picture and they looked like this. You know, I don't think you can rely on that in this 22nd century era, mm-hmm. especially the specific one that's set up in this book, the way you right. could in a detective novel written in the 19th right. century, the early 20th century. Yeah. Or even the late 20th century for that matter. Well, and there's there's the whole section of chapters um, with pain and fish, 
where they're yes. interrogating Ern. Yes. And asking him about what people look like. Right. And stuff. That's part of their questioning. Right. So that could fit in there to right. an extent. Um, also, again, like, those two characters never come back. Right. Even the threat of them never comes back. Right. Like, he's going back to the library, but he's not worried about pain and fish anymore. Right. Um... Which is weird. Which, also, if you go back to the persons mentioned in the narrative, pages 299 and 300, pain and fish are missing from that list oh, of characters. Oh, shoot. I knew I should have read this. And you know how I knew I, knew I should have read this? Because in Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabokov, you can't figure out the final mystery to the book unless you've read the glossary at the end. Ah. Um, <laughs> so, and it's, you know, it's the same kind of thing. Like, he, he did not... He didn't, he made the decision to put that, that little final chapter, or final, mm-hmm. you know, dramatist Which, like, persona this, in there. Yeah, that dramatist persona thing is, again, another trope for mystery things, for, for mystery novels. Right. To have the, the list of characters. These are the people who are at the party, you know. Right. And so, this is the one who got murdered, and now figure out from the rest of these, they're right. all suspects. Right. And so that's kind of what this is. Like, right. who on here is the... the culprit or whatever but there right. are people missing right <laughs> from it and right. so it's it's again it's taking the trope and turning it on its head right um yeah yeah absolutely which you know again only like so you only have earns word based on other people's word who are not trustworthy that pain and fish are law enforcement or mm-hmm. something official well and, and it's even not... kind of heavily implied that they're really not yeah which in in that implication made um from characters in the narrative they're trying to apply that they're like almost even more top secret they're like yeah. cia black ops types or whatever what if right. they're just guys that that conrad and colette with their vast wealth hired to be a red herring for urn sure and also to figure out what Ern knew and who Ern thought mm. was who. Sure. So again, if he if if you say there was a real body that some people thought was Conrad Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a certain you know description of that person that Conrad Jr. and Colette needed to propagate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if Ern knows the description that they want him to know then they've succeeded, whereas if he doesn't, he's a threat or someone's a threat. Right. Right? Like, that makes as much sense of the, the actual physical facts as the the sense that Ern actually makes of them. Mm-hmm. It's a tangled web. Um, I want to change tracks just a little bit, and oh. maybe this will tie in. Oh, go ahead. I, I actually did have a thought um, pertaining to your last thought regarding um so you were you were talking about how the world that that wolf creates here seems to want to be getting at something deeper right right that there's like, something it seems more to be commentary wise going on right it seems to be presenting a more pristine facade when underneath it's far more sinister yes absolutely and first of all as Neil Gaiman said, there are knives in the text. Yep. And that is every Gene Wolfe novel. Yep. There's a There's a pretty, pretty facade. Sometimes even the facade is not that pretty, but it's like that... that Better like than what's underneath. Bootstra- pull, pull, pull myself up by my bootstraps. Yep. This is good enough. You know, kind of... Yeah. Um, but beneath it, there are knives. 
right like even and again in that that gaiman article um he's he talks about peace a bunch of times and he says the first time he read peace it was this very sort of pastoral midwest uh memoir of a book sort of sort of a you know dandelion wine kind mm. of a kind of a book but beneath that which neil gaiman who is one of like our smartest readers and our best writers i think alive especially for you know this genre yep didn't catch on the first read underneath it there are so many knives mm-hmm. there's so much that's very 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 sinister yeah. in that book which is part of what what i love about it but right that's for the podcast when we read peace inevitably right um, that'll happen you know um, maybe but... we'll do an entire like 15 episode season just reading peace where we just give in and, and do yeah that. anyway um and then the alzebo soup guys come and kick our asses <laughs> right so what i was starting we, to say we could take him public <laughs> challenge to alzebo soup oh my god we will meet you on a field of glory i would like to disavow this right now <laughs> and say that only michael is we is will fight to the death even and me side by Not side me. inseparably yes okay. you cannot divide us we will fight against you side by side on the field of battle elzebo soup okay that's true but also only michael <laughs> um, anyway so what i was originally starting out to say um there was something pointed out by an author named uh, John C. Wright, who is pretty controversial in science fiction circles for reasons that don't bear going into now, but I reasons. think that whatever you think of him um, in other realms, he is a brilliant reader, and I think he's a brilliant science fiction writer, but he was, I, I read a blog post where he was talking about Gene Wolfe one time, and he said one of his biggest insights into Gene Wolfe that I think is utterly brilliant is the fact that in Wolf's novels, and this is true in, I think, most to all of Wolf's novels, what he gives you is a world where certain things are morally abhorrent. Sure. Um, that, that this world has monsters in it and things that are monstrous and that even, and this isn't like, you know, Wolf is, Wolf is Catholic, but this isn't a specifically religious thing. This is sure. a world where stuff is monstrous just on a human basic human yeah. decency level mm-hmm. right but like the burning of people who are practically people right mm-hmm. um who are clearly terrified to die yep uh and and you know it's in fifth head of cerberus and it's in every book since then uh-huh. of wolves um but what's the thing about it is this is a world where everyone in the narrative has grown up in this world it's the only thing that they know and it doesn't seem abhorrent to them. Yeah. There's no one in the text who it seems abhorrent to. It's abhorrent to the reader. Yeah. Um, and that's part of what, what this is that I think you're picking up on. Yeah, no, is, and I think that's you know, I think that's, that's right. That's part of part of Gene Wolfe's existential crisis. Yeah, absolutely. If, if, you know, we I would say every culture in the world, every advanced, you know, artistically and scientifically advanced culture considers for example murder to be abhorrent right what if you were raised in a culture where what you had been taught from the cradle was in certain circumstances murder is fine which is how the book begins we enslave black people (laughs) we murder you know these these beings that are 
not human, even though in every other identifiable well, aspect okay. of being, so they are human. Let's, let's, let's track the layers of murder that's not always such a terrible thing, as he says at the beginning. Yes. So if your idea about Colbert uh, um, um, Sr., uh, where he murders him, there's a reason for that. Yes. Also, like, he is subject to murder, but it's not called murder right. in this world. It's just... It's property that's being destroyed. Right. Also, he kills one of the alien baby things that's coming right. after him. So it could be considered murder to the alien. Right. Um, but murder is not always such a terrible thing. Right. And so when is it not such a terrible thing? Right. The law is not perfect. Uh, Self-defense is, is, a, is a legal reason right. for murder right. to be okay. Not right. okay, but like... You get off. <laughs> you, yeah, you don't. You don't necessarily get convicted if you can but, prove that it was like, purely self-defense. But I want to. I want to follow a slight rabbit trail to another side here. You mentioned dandelion wine earlier. I want to yes. bring up Fahrenheit four fifty one. Okay. Uh, because talking about people yeah. who are books and burning them. Right. That's, that's very a, Bradbury-ish. That's a very fair point. I would. I would also like to take an aside to say. I may have unintentionally slighted dandelion wine. Okay. Like, there's so much going on in that book that it's sure. not as simplistic as I may have implied. Well, but again, I, yeah. that's 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 a discussion for the podcast where we inevitably read, read dandelion, dandelion wine. wine. Right. Okay. Uh, no. Fahrenheit 451. Fahrenheit no. 451. So, um, the couple things, because uh, that's about books. Yeah. Um, where it was a pleasure to burn is how that starts, and yeah. so you're talking yeah. about burning books. Right. Which is a big thing that's going on here. Oh, that's However, true. the books that you're burning here are people, which is how Fahrenheit 451 ends. Mm-hmm. Where the books are gone, but the books you have are people, are people who have memorized those books. And so they are the resources that you go to. Oh, so yeah. this is almost like what comes after for- Fahrenheit 451, but it cycles back into the same it's... conclusion that you still burn the books. Yeah. It's almost now that you say that this this sort of culture is almost like so the 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 people who are books at the end of Fahrenheit 451 they're yep. like the rebels right they're yep. they're the the subversives yep. you know against the current government yep it's almost like if you projected a future where those subversives finally succeeded in their struggle came to power and Mm -hmm. then enshrined everything that took them to power and that's now the power structure right it's almost like what comes between last jedi and the force awakens yes yes (laughs) yes wait you mean the return of the jedi and the force awakens return of the jedi yes thank you yeah yeah. yep why did they have to name it anyway why do they have jedi in two Of the eight movies that all deal with the Jedi. That's garbage. Stupid. Uh, Anyway, um, I also want to point out that something came up. So we've established that Ern is an unreliable narrator, right? Mm -hmm. Can we Mm -hmm. all agree Ern is an unreliable narrator? Yes, Um, 155%. Good. Um, So he's talking about this idea of burning the people books, the reclones. The reclones. Like, that's just a normal thing. And it's almost kind of implied that, like... He, in one of his previous lives, was burned. Like Yeah, yeah. Like, it, he almost remembers it, is, yeah. is how I'm remembering it. That, like, right. it's as vivid as a memory to him. Right. But then you get to page 221, and uh, then he's he's reflecting on the fire. Uh, he, he's, he's on this other planet and, like, remembering, or, or got mixed up 
with thinking about the fire. By that I mean the one they burn you in when you're just about worn out, or if you live on your shelf day after day and hardly ever get consulted or borrowed. Right. I've never really been in it, which that statement itself is problematic. I've never so, really been in it. So have you or haven't you? So anyway, much hedging go in on. that statement. Yeah. But I know that it is in a special room in the basement, and I have seen it on a screen. I researched it. You know I did. So he's really getting defensive here. Right. You know I did. And there was a neat little piece about it with some old worn-out guy getting burned. A neat little piece in his research. Um, they had doped him was, so that assuming... he thought he was asleep, only he was really on this moving chain belt. He was not tied down or anything because he was so out of it, they had not had to tie him down. You go in head first, and I saw one of his legs move just a little. Right, which is encapsulating in a single passage the contradiction between, like, this is a societally acceptable thing. Right. We just burn this property when it's no longer of use. It's okay, though, because it's it's artificially created. It, they're right. not real people. We sedate them anyway, which, like, maybe you wouldn't do if they actually right. weren't real people. Right. Like, you wouldn't bother. But we sedate them so even if they are, it's okay. But then his leg moved. Like, it's, it's right. such a set of contradictions. Right. So, there. And, and there's, there's a layer under that even still, though. Because, like, um, first of all, he's hearing all of this as hearsay. And, right. like, really getting defensive about the fact right. that he knows that this is real. Right. But only from... Only second hand. Right. Like, it's just a story, but he's stating it that it, it's a story that's that's absolutely true. I know it's true. Right. I've done my research. Which is the only type of story he's allowed to tell. Right. Um, also, the, the layer here, too, that um, this guy who's who's doped, it's like he's, he's sedated, as you say, in order to just go down this chain belt into the fire. Right. Where his leg moves a little bit, which... Just that idea of sedating this person, and um, it, it, it's an opiate. It, it, it's the, the opiate of the masses sort of situation <laughs> right. here, where the, this this guy, this example of this old guy, whatever author he happens to be, um, had to be discarded for whatever reason, and right. so to discard him, they had to sedate him to convince him he was just sleeping. Right. Um, but so so the question is like, how much has Earn been sedated or doped or opiated, right. which I'm using that as a word, um, <laughs> by the story itself to be convinced this is what needs to be right. in order for me to stay where I am. Because that's all the sedation did. It takes the place of physical bonds. Right, right. And so there, there, he doesn't need to be physically bound right. where he is because he's already convinced this is the narrative that I'm being fed. He's enslaved in this way. Right. Yeah. And so, like, that that sort of, it, 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 it encapsulates, or, or it covers the whole novel, this idea of being convinced this is the way things have to be. Right. And so you're stuck in it, and you don't need to be physically bound to go along right. with it. That's a really good point along the lines of just, you know, the the social structures versus, versus free will idea that, you know, this, this training sort of enshrines in them certain sort of morally abhorrent things mm -hmm. um one of the uh uh like what well, because like you know his conclusion his his uh end game here is still to stay at the library right right like he's why does know, he need to stay at the library <laughs> right. right and that's that's just the unconscious assumption you know he's he's you know if you do follow the uh 
sort of assumption or assertion of him as like someone who's sort of pushing out against the boundaries that that, mm-hmm. that bind him he's still operating on that on that unconscious assumption that being on his shelf at the library you know being fed the basic food and having yep. the, the very basic pleasures of being in the library is the highest good so long as he gets to keep doing it and not get right. burned Right. When, like, this whole return after midnight thing, the book ending at the strike of midnight on his watch, yeah. like, gives it a little bit of a Cinderella feel. Right. So, like, it, it's all turned back into a pumpkin now. Like, this was a grand fantasy, Adventure. and now he's going well, and back he does, to the way things used to be. But in in the classic hero's journey sense, he does have, like, the boon or the, the, uh, sure. the elixir, because he's won for himself a place where he will get to keep existing. Sure. Um, and that's the entire fight he's been, he's been, you know, right. fighting. But he even says earlier on, too, like, I've got 15 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, this, uh, uh, there's, there's nothing, like, halfway... I expected him at the end of this to be like, all right, you know, I've got this, this hold over you. You're going to like perma keep me. You're going to say that yep. I, I was destroyed or killed and like, you know, you're going to pay whatever fine it takes or lose your deposit or whatever. Mm-hmm. You're going to keep me. Um, you know, I was halfway expecting him to like, you know, force her to become his lover or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, like, Obviously, none when of these. Instead, he goes with Arabella for right. that, like one night after his 137 dry year dry spell, right? right. Uh, <laughs> Which is interesting. It, at first, it seemed to me like unnecessary story baggage that he kept having people like bring him different versions of Arabella. Yeah, you know, with, the, like, except no, he's creating a little nest for himself. Yep, he's figuring out which library's Arabella is at the point where you know she'll she'll. Uh, sleep with him right rather than like fighting with him all the time right like he's auditioning them because he's got this yeah. little modicum of power yeah so we see him like taking any sliver of power and using it mm-hmm. that's kind of what we see in urn just in general like if he can right. take a sliver of power he will use it to its utmost ex- extent exactly but he doesn't he's still bound within those social mm-hmm. constraints or training constraints where he could do a lot more things and get a lot more of what he at least seems to want. Notice that I'm not making any moral judgments about whether that that would make him a good person, just that this is how <laughs> he would exercise the power. Right. Um, you know, but he doesn't because he's trained in a certain way. Right. Yeah. Which, like, begs the question, if we're connecting this back to Fahrenheit 451 again, right. where are the rebels? Who Who are the actual rebels? Right. Like... Part of, you know, when he, he, uh, talks about his, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of, there's this, this tension where, you know, people are socially trained to say, oh, reclones are just property. It's okay if we destroy them. They're just the equivalent of like a computer program that can walk around and stuff. The, um, you know, there, there is a tension between that and some of the, the remarks that, that Colette, among other people make where, She's she's like, well, you don't seem you seem like a real person. Like she almost, you know, and maybe mm-hmm. it's it's her flirting with him and trying to manipulate him. But oh, sure. She she gets to a point where she's almost says, like, you could be a sexual threat. Right. Like mm-hmm. not I like she makes it clear I won't go to bed with you. But right. to to have to say that means that theoretically I could. Right. Um, Which, you know, 
seems to not jive with like you're just property or you're just a, a computer program or something. Yeah. Um, and th- there are remarks like the uh, um, the the criminal guy who earn allies with chick. Who's, yeah, chick. Chick even goes farther um, and basically says like, "There's no difference between you and a real person." Um, yeah, yeah I, I forget how he phrases it exactly, but that's what the outcome is. He doesn't. Ultimately, he thinks of Earn as A, his boss, and B, you know, as no different from a real person. Right. Um, also, so you do George it... and Mahala yes. never realize that he's anything other than a real person. Yeah, exactly. So there is this tension that's set up there between what the the culture seems to be teaching people and what people's perceptions actually are. Yeah. But you're right. There's no, like, there's no, you know, rebellion remnant that you ever see. Like, you, you with with all of those setups, especially in a lot of sort of classic science fiction novels, you'd expect there to be, like, oh, these are these are the rebels. They're recruiting reclones, and they're, like, going on yeah. bombing missions against the government or something yeah. like that. But, you know, the government in this 22nd century, in that particular way, seems to be much more hands-off and much more sort of letting people the, stew in whatever thing makes yeah. life easiest any for any government agent in fact seems more like a thug yeah um absolutely. like you, i mean with with uh pain and fish who yeah. beat him and which like you can you can write that off as he's not really a person right um and then or even know, dane Chick who being shady cha- dane who be- makes more sense as a as a gov- actual government agent potentially coming out and like just demanding the money which like he's he's called a tax collector and i forget the actual agency but it's a super complicated name well and there's even in a in that freaking glossary or persons mentioned um if you look up van petten dane an enforcement specialist Ern smith calls him a tax collector right which seems like an awful lot of hedging from that right presumably objective third person narrator who put together this list of characters (laughs) right Um, so yeah um so but just the idea that the government itself is they mostly it it seems like they less of a pure monolith yeah and it's mostly to like let people go with whatever whatever uh floats their boat right but if they get too out of line to the point where they could be a threat you just beat them it, back into line it really seems you make like difficult so that they choose yeah, the easy path it really seems like this whole book kind of just emphasizes the idea of social constructs yeah that yeah even even the government doesn't really exist as an entity right it, it's it's just it, it's a name that's given to something that's not really there yeah and instead it's just this is how people have agreed to get along with things. Right. And this is how things are continuing. And, like, even to the point where you can have a reactor in a house that mm-hmm. could create a huge explosion that's not regulated. Right. And, like, that's something that you would expect there to be some sort of government watch over it. Yeah. But there's not. And just just the ignorance that seems to be there when there there's all this paranoia about listening devices and things... And in the 22nd century, with all of this advanced technology, you would think that there would just be listening to devices all over the place. And so there's nowhere safe. That's, right. that's kind of the impression you get, but then it keeps being brought up. Oh, there's no listening devices here, obviously. Right. But in there, there probably were. So right. we're going to go out here where there can't be. Right. Which is coming from this guy who's a reclone of a guy from the 21st century who wouldn't know all of that. Right. But still presents that and so it's just emphasizing the idea of the social constructs as i said that 
we just agree to live this way. Right. Without actually writing a good contract. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, on that note, that is probably the end of our discussion here. Probably. But <laughs> Unless you have anything else the, to bring up. In the spirit of the book, we will do some good hedging. Yes. And just say probably. Probably. So. Probably we're not going to talk anymore about this. Probably. Though probably we will. Probably. Maybe. Who knows? Um, yeah. So, with that, um, uh, should we go to ratings? Yes, we should. Ratings. All right. Uh, first rating is the scotch, Ethan. The what scotch. did you think of the McCollin Fine Oak Triple Cask Matured Highland Single Malt Scotch Whiskey 10, 10 years old? 10, 10. <laughs> um, I liked it. Okay. Um, it's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It actually, in a sense, I think, uh, parallels this book well because... We'll the, get to that rating later. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, like, the more that I drink it, the more I sort of want to keep giving it a second chance. Like, I wasn't that thrilled with it to begin with. You know, other than a baseline of, like, this is good scotch and I will always be thrilled with any good scotch. Sure. But, um, you know, the more that I drink it, like, it was like every sip there was something else in it. Mm. Um, it was, it's very woody, mm-hmm. uh... I, I've I've had scotch that's finished in sherry casks before and not liked it because sherry cask finishing seems to take on very like a very harsh tone. Sure. Um, sometimes, uh, but this had just enough of the sherry to give some of those like like cherry or other dark dark fruit notes mm-hmm. um, without like being sort of overpowering and harsh. So I like that. It's definitely very woody, like mm-hmm. calling it um, the, the fine oak, you know, there's, there's yeah. definitely some oak and some other like just casky notes in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's, it is sort of a riot of, of stuff. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's a smokiness to it. It's a little bit harsh, but not any more so than you'd expect of a, of a decent, scotch um so all that said i would definitely recommend drinking it i would definitely give it a drink it again mm-hmm. um i gave it a four out of four? five yeah all right i liked it less than you did <laughs> really yep i i'd never had this before yeah uh i thought it was intriguing to me and just the idea that it was filtered through three casks right um is is part of why i picked it for this book sure um so <laughs> sure um uh so yeah you got that yeah. um but uh like you said it's very woody uh i got some grassy notes a little bit of floral stuff yeah, but then yeah, you've yeah. got that dark fruit that comes kind of at the end there's a there's a little bit of complexity but i feel like it's just rough enough on the outside to make me not really want to like if if given this in a lineup of other scotches i would mm. probably pick a different scotch sure um because it's it's not as interesting of a flavor palette to me it's it seems very plain and just yeah. like the alcohol kind of overpower overpowers it a little bit even with a dash of water sure. in the scotch the the water helps um uh opening up a little bit of those dark fruits especially uh, and that sherry uh flavor yeah. but um ultimately 
Uh, it's it's subpar. Uh, it it's really? okay. I'll drink it again. Sure. I'll drink it again. But if if I'm offered this scotch and a different scotch, I'll drink the different scotch probably. See, for me, I think it actually would depend on my mood. Sure. Like I think there's a certain mood where if I had this scotch in a lineup of say ten scotches, sure, I might pick this one. Okay. It would obviously depend on what the other scotches were. Obviously, yeah, but, it depends. Um, because um, there I, are I some that I would not. Drink. Yeah, <laughs> but like, there. Are but there are definitely, you know, sort of equal level sort of 10, 12 year old scotches. That yeah. If they were in a lineup with this one, I might pick this one instead. Sure. Um, but, you know, like one one that comes to mind is like the the Glenlivet. I think it's their 14 year that they finish in French oak or French like wine cast. Yeah. Um, and in some moods, that would just be my go to scotch. Sure. But mm-hmm. in other moods, if I was offered that one and this one, I would pick this one. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, I, I'll also echo what you said about wanting to give it a second chance and, like, always wanting to try it again. Yeah. Um, and it, it does seem to get better the more I try it. Yeah. Um, so, like, when I first took my sip, I was highly disappointed, and I was mm-hmm. ready to give it, like, two stars. Uh, I'm going to give it three. Oh. Perfectly average. It's, it's an okay scotch. Sure. I'll drink it again. Um, and so three stars is what I'm oh. giving it. I was debating between three and a half and four, but like sure. just the fact that it seems to change just a little with every sip I take. Sure. Just pushed it up a, a notch right. for me. All right. Um, so the book, uh, buy, borrow, or forget about it. I would say buy it and read it multiple times. Yep. But I would say that for pretty much every Gene Wolfe novel. So far, I mean, I've read two. Right. Both of the Gene Wolfe novels I've read, I will say bye. Yeah. Um, there was a point, I, I'll, I'll admit to this uh, ashamedly, there was a point in reading this that I was thinking about the ratings, and mm-hmm. I was ready to say borrow. I, I tend to agree. And it was the point that I thought that, it was, it was when I very first got to the very end. And I thought, he tied this up, he wrote this book. You know, I don't, I don't like to think that his powers are waning in his old age, but it was some thought like that. I'll admit, sure. You know, maybe he wrote this book a little bit more simply, a little bit more, you know, giving sort of giving the answers to people where in the past he'd been contented to yeah. let those answers sort of lie buried. But as the last two hours worth of discussion will tell you, I don't think that's. No, a fair no, not at all. I, I, I was, I was thinking it, it was getting a little too scattered, and yes, too like th- there was a point where I was questioning, why am I reading this? Yeah, what's what is this book Especially trying this to do? Particular passage. Yeah, why, why, why is point. this here? But upon reflection, it it illuminates a lot more. Yeah, and that's 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 one of the strengths of Gene Wolfe. I, right. I have to say is upon reflection. Yeah, and that's a the lot thing... more comes out. Anytime that I have been about to dismiss a Gene Wolfe novel, or that I've heard someone else dismiss a Gene Wolfe novel, whoever was about to do the dismissing was wrong. Like, straight up, this has never been disproven for me. Which is actually, yeah. you know, that faith is what got me through reading this one. Oh, yeah. If this had been my first one, I actually might not have... Oh, sure. You know, I might have, I might have dismissed it much more easily. But, you know, as with every single Gene Wolfe novel, I'm glad I, I sort of stuck, stuck with it yep. and looked deeper. And, you know, I say I've read every Gene Wolfe novel. Most of them I've only read once. Sure. Peace I've read like five times, but most of them I've only read right. once. And I almost don't consider that I've actually read them until I've read them at least one more time. Sure. 
Um, no, and I kind of get that feeling with this book too. Like, yeah, I, I, I've only scratched the surface of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and but, you know, yeah. I know I could read this two to three more times and still get yep. new stuff out of it. Yep. So, so all right. yeah. Uh, so, book scotch pairing. I do like what you said about um, this scotch matching with this book so nicely. And partly, I think it is that 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 like triple layer production <laughs> um, mat just parallels nicely with this book. Uh, also, again, the fact that like you know, if you if you listen back to my scotch review a few minutes ago, um, I just there was so much going on in the scotch, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's part of why I rated it as highly as I did is that. Yet first, you think that there's just like a bunch of sort of scattershot stuff going on, mm-hmm. but the more that you drink it, the more it sort of all pulls together, sure, and seems like a coherent thing. It Whether it's a unit. yeah, it's it's certainly not the best scotch I've I've had, but sure. it's, it's an it's impressive for what it does. Yeah. Um. Uh. So I would I would rate uh the book scotch pairing very highly because the book again, like you said, does that same thing. There's mm-hmm. there's a lot going on in the book, but once I came up with that whole you know um earn murdered uh uh conrad senior theory mm-hmm. like it seemed to pull everything together under that umbrella sure and i feel like the scotch does a similar thing but sure. with you know taste instead of literature yeah i'll echo that um like really i was just going off of what the box said on the scotch right. when i picked it right but uh i think it i think it answered it and again just the fact that i started rating it more highly the more i drank of it it's kind of this similar yeah, to the book, similar the, to the book. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll i enjoy it more the more i get into it yeah so yeah nope yep all right so would you like to know what we are reading next month i would like to know that. all right uh Please. i'll preface this by saying we're oh, kind sure. of um this this is a book that i have read i want to say half a dozen times okay uh it i i will describe the that this... i think i know what it is but go on Maybe. Okay, go on. Uh, I will also say that this is a book that was formative for me. That is a word that I will use. Uh-huh. Uh, a book that I read as a child uh, and kind of defined my interest in literature to an extent. Okay. Uh, I've also written a college paper on this book. Oh. Um, and so maybe maybe I'll, I, I've been thinking about maybe digging that up. And seeing if it's any good, and if it's any good, maybe putting that on the website. <laughs> if it's if it's anything like papers I wrote when I was like twenty one or twenty two years old, it's not right. It's not. That's, good. that's something but, that I'm know. thinking too. It, you uh, could maybe use it as it was talking for points, a, yeah, that's and something. not expose everyone to your right. prose from seven years ago, right? But it was for a Lars class that I wrote this paper. Okay, um, but this book, uh, and I, I think you have a copy of this book already. Okay, so I didn't get you a copy, well, but my copy's over here on this shelf. There's still a butt. For that, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle. Oh, it is not the book that I thought it was. So as you as you continued your your noted very lengthy preface, yep. Um, which is this is not the sort of show where we usually do lengthy prefaces, but I'll allow it this time. <laughs> um, uh, at first, I thought it was it was one book. And then as you spoke, I thought it was a different book, but I couldn't remember which book it was. And it's definitely this book. Okay. Because you wrote your paper for literary criticism. Yes, it did. With Lars on this book. Yes, it did. Um, um, so, yeah. No, I do. I have 
at least one and possibly two to three copies in I, my house. I figured. Between myself and my wife, having I both figured. read this book. And, and see, this, this is a sort of book that we could read in probably a week. Yeah. No problems. Yeah. I could, uh, 200 if pages. I, if I have a day off and decide yeah. to just start reading this book in the morning and continue till I'm done, I might be done before lunch. Right. Um, like, okay, but this is, this is like, as I said, it's formative. And so, like, part of that makes me nervous to revisit it. Right. Because, like, what if I hate it? Right. Like, then what does my entire right. life mean? Um, but also, it's a book that I am really excited to revisit. Yes. Uh, it, I didn't intend it to be timely because there's a movie coming out. Oh, that's right, yeah. With Oprah Winfrey. I'm, I'm The jury's out. Right, I'm, I'm definitely willing it. to see it. I'll, I'll yeah. see it, and I'll, I'll, I'll get back With to an y'all open on mind. that. But, um, but no, I want to, I want to take the book in its, in its own right. I, I was contemplating yeah. trying to take one from one from the rest of the series from the Time Quintet. Um, but this is the first one. But this so is the first one, and not it's make as much sense. Right. I, I mean, they, they, the rest of them do kind of stand on their own. You yeah, could take yeah. them out of context. But really, no, I want to just go back to A Wrinkle but in like, Time. But if you're going to do any of them and you haven't done any of them, A Wrinkle in Time is the one you do. Yep, And exactly. I'm actually really excited that you picked this book. Sweet. Because um, for me, myself, like, Wrinkle in Time wasn't as formative to me as, say, uh, Lord of the Rings or sure. Chronicles of Narnia or... Um, and see, I know, came to both of those... Really the life late, and opinions of late. Tristram Shandy, even. <laughs> um, it, it wasn't as formative to me as any of those, but I did read it at a very impressionable age, and I do remember it giving me a really great, like, expanded sense of what the, the fantasy genre could do yeah. and what you could do in a book. And it did... Um, lead into me reading other Madeline Langle books, including The Arm of the Starfish. See, and I want to read that. Which, weirdly for me, was a more formative book than Wrinkle in Time. Really? But okay. I do remember Wrinkle in Time at several places just sort of exploding my brain. Right. But oh. also, I read it, you know, literally 15 years ago probably at this point, so I don't remember why or what about it. And so, because of all of those things, I've been sort of meaning to go back and reread, like, maybe all of Madeline Langle's novels, but certainly to reread, like, The Time Quintet and mm -hmm. Arm of the Starfish and some of those other novels. Haven't gotten around to it, so this will be a perfect, at least, starting point to go yes. ahead and do that. So I do appreciate like, this the, pick. The danger of this pick for me is as soon as I finish reading A Wrinkle in Time, I'm going to want to re read the rest of The Time Quintet. Right. And then probably, like, launch myself into the other books by Madeline Langle. Right. So. And, and there's, like, 30 of them that all interconnect to yeah. some degree or another. She's and created a world of, in right. all of this. And that's part of why I haven't started rereading right. them. Because part of what I've wanted to do is reread just all 30 of them. Yeah. Or some of them read for the first time. I certainly haven't read all 30. No, I haven't either. But. But. So, so we'll anyway. save the rest of our talk about the book that we're about to read until <laughs> for next time. For next time. Um, so, and possibly we'll have read 30 books and we'll discuss them all. Maybe we will. Probably not. So read along with all 30 of those books <laughs> by Madeline Langle. Just go to your library and say, I want Madeline Langle. I want all of the Madeline Langle all you Madeline have. All of Madeline Langle that you have. <laughs> yes. So join the discussion. Visit us at tapestryradio.org. Leave your feedback in the contact section. Put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Uh, and if you like what we do here each month, review us on iTunes, rate us five stars. Uh, also follow us on Twitter at Room with Scotch and on Facebook at Michael Nathan and Room with Scotch. Uh, find the Facebook group as well, the Tapestry Radio Tap House. 
uh, where uh, fans and creators can chat and discuss things. We'll let you into that group if you request it and you're not a robot or a reclone. Um, <laughs> no, we'll probably let in reclones. Yeah, we probably Especially will. Especially if they're as smart as, as Ern was. Right. We might give We're them a thorough moral vetting first to make sure right. they're not going to murder us for some reason. Yeah. But yeah. other than that, yeah. Other than that. Also, anyway. follow our network, uh, the Tapestry Radio Network. Enjoy some of the other great shows that we have there, including Intermission, our drama podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the Real Play Pokemon Tabletop United RPG podcast. If you go what I think is a couple episodes back, you can hear me on that podcast. That's right. Ethan's on there. So, uh, enjoy one, that. One episode. I did enjoy that. Uh, yeah. So, any other thoughts, Ethan, before we say goodbye? Really nothing. All right. Really nothing at all. Sounds good. We'll probably not talk about this book anymore after we close out. Probably. Okay, Bye. Okay, we love you. Bye-bye. Just know me. Hey. Except for biblically. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sh I didn't realize this was a recording. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Boy, I just took a hard jump, skip, and hop, and I ended up in Minnesota. <laughs>
It's not hard to do. <laughs> yes. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.